we are about to dive even deeper into the Maya Kowalski case by chatting with a CRPS caregiver. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and today we're continuing our conversation about Maya Kowalski and the medical abuse of power that came out of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. We spoke in the last episode about the Kowalski family and about Maya Kowalski's diagnosis of complex regional pain syndrome, also known as CRPS. Today, we're having a conversation with Sandy, who is a mom of a young man living with CRPS. I wanted to bring this story to the table for two reasons. One, I think we all need to have a better understanding of CRPS to understand the Kowalski family and also to understand why so many medical staff members didn't understand Maya. The second reason is so that we can also have an understanding of Beata and what it is like to care for your child who is suffering in this way. While we may not ever run into someone with CRPS, I think this is a lesson that we can all follow forward to have compassion and grace on people around us who are suffering from things we don't understand. Please join me in welcoming Sandy, who has graced us with her story and with her son. Sandy, thank you so much for joining us to share your story today. Can you just tell us a little bit about you? My name is Sandy, like you said, and I am a primary caregiver to my adult son who has complex regional pain syndrome. I'll refer to that throughout this discussion as CRPS. My son, his journey with CRPS began when he was a junior in college. We used to live in Illinois. We now live in Texas. We had moved down here. He had transferred, enrolled in a new university about an hour away from our house. And um, on the second day of classes, he had gone to the recreational center and was playing a game of pickup basketball. And he went up for a jump shot. When he came down, he heard a pop. He had to leave the gym and go to the emergency room. He had torn his Achilles tendon, which is a pretty rare injury for a 22-year-old anyway. Um, but we didn't really think anything. It was just kind of like, huh, he tore his Achilles. I mean, it kind of, it's a real bummer because he was just starting out in this university. He was just starting to make friends. The university is about an hour away. So my husband drove over after work. As soon as he got the call, it was right after work. He drove over, got him, brought him home. Um, we knew it was, uh, a torn Achilles because they'd already done the imaging at the emergency room. So we got him home. We, 
um, contacted an orthopedic surgeon. They were able to get him in within a couple of days. And by the end of the week, he had had um, an Achilles surgery. Everything seemed to be going as planning. In fact, I, I still get these little Facebook memories. You know, they pop up uh, routinely and I've got pictures of him walking in his boot and saying, oh, he's progressing. And he ended up going back to school. Um, he had a boot on his leg. He had a scooter to get around. And then he had a handicap sticker for his car. Um, he was very frustrated with the university for had their lack of disability parking. He struggled to get parking where he could get to classes on time. Um, he ended up the semester. Um, he didn't even tell me this at the time. He just did it. He ended up taking a medical withdrawal. Um, he was too late to get a refund, but he took a medical withdrawal. It annoyed me. Like at the time, it annoyed me because I was just like, really? This is what we're doing here. I mean, I've already paid for the semester. He would say things along the lines of this physical therapist does not know what she's doing. My leg is not getting better. Um, my leg is so tight. I still have pain in my leg. That was in 2019. He decided to drop that university and go to a community college over in that area rather than come home and live with us. But then COVID hit. And so he was working at a gym. COVID hit. And when COVID hit, we just said, you know what? Why don't you just pick up, move back home? And when he got here, he continued to say things like, my leg is so tight. I mean, I bought him like a little leg stretching apparatus. I got him new shoes. I was doing all the, you know, all these little things that you're like, we just need to stretch more. I bought him one of those like percussion massager guns for Christmas that year. Try to kind of like work out those tight muscles. I'd send him to massage, all of that kind of stuff. But when he got home for COVID, I was like, well, you know what? You're not doing anything anyway. You might as well just go to physical therapy. It's literally around the corner. So we we took him back to the doctor. He was describing it. The doctor said, yeah, I think what you need is more physical therapy. I'm going to preface that by saying for the CRPS patient, Physical therapy, especially when you identify it very quickly like that early on is normally a good thing, but he was not diagnosed. And so the type of physical therapy that they were giving to him was not appropriate for the CRPS condition. It was all geared at pushing um, the physical condition forward and it was not geared at the appropriate level. There's, there's a philosophy with CRPS that you don't want to put yourself into pain while you're doing therapy, you want to stay what they call in the yellow. Red is it hurts too much. Green is you're doing nothing. You want to be in the yellow, which is like you're pushing yourself, but you're not pushing yourself so far that you're creating kind of like a crisis in your your body and mind where your brain thinks there's something wrong because that's the problem with CRPS. CRPS is the brain interpreting that your body has not healed properly and it's continuing to do things like send inflammation and um, restrict blood flow, do all kinds of stuff that when left unchecked and when left to go, you know, kind of repeatedly um, can be very destructive to the body long-term. Short-term, it's good. It heals. Long-term, which is what happens to the CRPS um, individual, it's destructive. And for him, that kept going. The reason you want to stay in the yellow is so you don't cause a flare-up. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. It tells your body that it needs to ease back that things are getting better, right? Like the red is, oh, it's crisis mode. The green is you're not doing anything. So therefore your brain says, well, if they're not doing anything, they must still be hurt. 
right? Mm-hmm. Whereas the yellow is, it's like the brain starts to interpret it as healing. Okay. And so it quits doing all of those things that are destructive in it. It reconnects the feedback loop of pain to the appropriate level. And then that, if you do that early and you do that right, that can put CRPS into remission. And they do things also like mirror therapy or sensitization therapy where they're starting to introduce and get the brain to correctly interpret sensations as not being harmful and needing to protect the body, um, which is at, at the heart of what CRPS is. It's the brain's desire to protect you from harm. I mean, it's, a, it's actually a good thing, but it's a good thing at such an extreme level that it becomes destructive. So that was like early on, he was still not diagnosed. That was like March, April of 2020. Just kind of went through the year. He decided um, to just start working out at home. Like he's like, they don't know what they're doing at the physical therapy. I'm going to do it at home, right? So he just started working out in our garage and he was doing these very basic workouts. He was eating really clean, like chicken and asparagus and just eating like really good foods. And the thing that that strikes me um, or struck me at the time, and, and I still remember it vividly, is no matter what he did, his leg kept shrinking. And I would comment on it and be like, huh, it just looks like it, like your leg. And I thought it was from wearing a boot, right? The atrophy was from wearing a boot. But it really was just like the brain was not sending the correct signals. That leg was not getting nourished the way healthy tissue should get nourished. And it just continued to shrink and atrophy. The kicker for him was that in December of that year, December of 2020, um, he contracted COVID and um, it was a very mild case. Honestly, um, we all had it. We were all, our entire household was sick. His symptoms were like his sense of taste um, was bad. He had some headaches, didn't even especially last for that long. It was like a week. Right. And then we all ended up going in getting a steroid shot and it kind of boosted our healing and, and we kind of got back to normal. But for him, about a month later, he was working out and he came in, he was going to grill some food. And my husband and I were in bed. He's, he's kind of a night owl. So um, he still had localized pain. Everything was localized to that one leg. He was in the kitchen and he screamed. And my husband came running in and he thought he blew out his Achilles again. And he was just beside himself. He was just like, I can't do this for six more months. I have to have surgery again and like the whole thing. So my husband took him to the emergency room and his Achilles was fine. And then it's like, okay, now what do you do? Like then he started getting these really strange radiating um, like you could see his muscles twitching. He said he felt like his leg was like jelly, very strange. What I know now were nerve symptoms, right? So okay, went back to the orthopedic doctor again, physical therapy. And that doctor at the time even documented in his notes, I do not understand the etiology of this. He just flat out wrote, I don't know what's going on. He never went to nerve stuff, which is devastating because what that meant, I didn't know enough about it at the time to know, oh, we should have just gone and got a second opinion, right? Like I trust that this doctor is a very good doctor. He's done surgery on me too. I trusted that he knew what he was doing. I don't know why he didn't make the connection that when my son was complaining about this severe ongoing pain, that it was nerve. I do not know why. 
what ended up happening was he gave Connor another order for physical therapy. And we live in North Dallas. So I was like, you know what? We're going to go to the clinic where the Dallas Cowboys go because they will know what to do with this, right? Like they're, they're paid the big bucks. So we were going to go to that same clinic. And, um, but it took a long time to get in, took a couple months to get an appointment. And so in the meantime, I kind of convinced him, let, let me see if I can get you in with a pain management doctor, because if we get in with a pain management doctor, then they'll, they'll be able to at least give you like some trigger point injections or something just to relieve this pain. When we got to the pain management doctor, Connor started in, you know, talking about Achilles tear and I've got this, you know, my Achilles is still doing this. And the, and the doctor said, just stop. He said, I don't even want to hear about what you think it is. I want you to tell me what you're feeling. And so Connor described it and he said, I don't think it's your leg that's in trouble. I think it's your back. He ordered an MRI of the back and sure enough, he had blown out a disc on that night. He'd blown a disc. Okay. Now time we were like, great. Now we know what it was. Let's fix it and then move forward. Right. Like that in our minds, that was going to be the end of it. So we did a couple of epidural injections um, and his back and that jelly leg did start to feel better. But then the original pain in his cap was back. We're going back and forth to follow up appointments. And the doctor's just like sitting there with this quizzical look on his face. And he goes, you know what? I think you got more than one thing going on here. Just take off your shoe. So Connor took off his shoe and he said, oh, he said, look at the color of your foot. So back to, this is the Budapest criteria. He said, look at the color of your foot. Your foot is red. Now it was red. I will give him that. It wasn't so red that I like, it would have set up alarm bells. Now I've seen it get that red where I would have been like, holy moly what's going on with your leg i've seen it get that way now at the time though it was just kind of a it was redder than the other leg it it wasn't something that would have like super duper stood out to me but he knew what he was looking for then he starts pointing to changes in hair growth patterns things like that asking connor all kinds of pointing questions that would help him identify from a budapest criteria perspective do you meet this criteria? And by the end of that appointment, he said, I really think that you have a condition called complex regional pain syndrome. By this point, it was a year and nine months since the original Achilles tear. So he was well past the acute stage of complex regional pain syndrome. Now, up till then, it had been relatively contained to that one leg. But very quickly after having COVID, first it started with the back. It was like like a bomb went off in his body. Um, the same phenomenon that took Maya Kowalski to the hospital with the abdominal pain. We took Connor to the emergency room for that. He came down just absolutely beside himself. And he had so much pain in his abdomen that he passed out. It took three of us to get him to the car for my husband to get him to the emergency room. I mean, and I remember sitting there saying to him, you know, of course, at the time he's on all kinds of like narcotics and they're starting him on all these new medications. And so you don't know, is this from that or is this from something else? It was awful. That was awful. That was an awful night. Went to the emergency room. They do the stuff and they tell us there's nothing wrong. 
But they also said we needed to follow up with a gastro doctor and they got us in to see one very quickly. So then, you know, now we've got a gastro doctor, a pain management doctor, an orthopedic for his back, an orthopedic doctor for his foot. We're starting to accumulate an inventory of doctors. I'm not going to get into all of them, but I will tell you that at this point, it's now four years later, we have 34 physicians that he's seen. Wow. I have taken him to in excess of 500 medical related visits. We have put over 20,000 miles on our vehicle. We have spent more than $50,000. It still goes on. Then the pain management doctor starts putting him through a series of other tests to confirm his visual diagnosis. He had him do nerve conduction studies. And then he did what's called a sympathetic nerve block. And he said, if the sympathetic nerve block works, that's diagnostic in and of itself because that will shut down your sympathetic nervous system. And that's a root cause underlying CRPS is that your sympathetic nervous system is stuck on. He said, you turn it off. And he said, sometimes what can happen is you turn it off and it's like rebooting a computer. You turn it off and your your brain and your body get back in sync and you come back. So again, what I hear all of this is, oh, you go in, you get this nerve block, everything's going to go back to normal, right? And it did. I mean, for a very short period of time, he felt okay. He was like, yeah, I feel better. He went out to dinner with us one night for pizza. I mean, when he was laying in bed with that first disc and all of those shooting pains, he was pretty much bedridden for about two months. He really was like gritting his teeth, gutting it out. He would lay face down on his bed and just lay there because it was the only way he could get comfortable. Now we're starting to learn CRPS. And I will just tell you, I did not get it. I did not get how bad it was. I kind of thought, oh, we're just going to turn him off and turn him back on and everything's going to go back to normal. And I remember that was like early summer 2021, I think at that point, it just started to become the way I always describe it is like a snowball rolling down the hill and it just kept getting bigger and bigger and picking up steam and getting more and more scary. I work in the insurance industry. And so I describe it like this. So if you've ever known anyone whose house has been hit by a bolt of lightning, CRPS is a bolt of lightning to the brain, comes in, hits your body. If you ever know anybody whose house gets hit by a bolt of lightning, what happens is it does the initial damage. It makes a mark, right? It's it's a big thing. But it also, it shoots a flare through the entire electrical system of a house. Pretty soon, people who had that, well, suddenly their refrigerator is not working anymore, their microwave, and they're starting to have to replace TVs. And every electronic in their house just slowly starts to die one by one because it's been zapped. CRPS is the same way. It is a lightning bolt to the brain, but it has a ripple effect throughout the entire nervous system. And if you follow any kind of CRPS sites on like Facebook or things like that, these people fall apart. I say that with profound sadness. When I found those sites, they were very validating to me because I was like, oh, he's not making this up. You like, because your inclination is, it's not that you don't believe them. It's just that it's unbelievable. Like, how can this happen? I've got this 22 year old and suddenly 
he's having just one thing after like, okay, now it's your gut. Okay. Your intercostal muscles are doing this. He would live for these nerve blocks, right? Like he was so excited because he would know that after he had a nerve block, he would come home and he would feel somewhat normal for a little bit. Went and got a nerve block one day and, and he had just been so miserable leading up to it. Came back home. And the first thing he did, we had a puppy. She was nine probably seven pounds at the time because she's nine pounds now. She was still a baby. He went to get her out of her pen. And when he bent down to pick her up, he screamed. And I was like, okay, now what? It was his arm. He thought that he had tore the muscle in his arm. He still, to this day, does not know what's wrong with that arm. That night, we we jumped in the car and we ran around the corner to the physical therapy where he was going. And I'm like, can you just tell me if I need to, did he tear anything? Like, can you, can you tell, did he tear something? Do I need to take him to the emergency room? We decided he didn't need to go to the emergency room. We came back home and, and we just kind of wrapped it and said, okay, we'll make an appointment with an orthopedic doctor and we'll go do that in due time. It's not even going to do us any good to go to the emergency room because there's nothing they're going to do anyway. But this just went on and, and he started getting all kinds of symptoms like he couldn't regulate temperature. We live in Texas. It was the middle of summer going outside even to get into the car to go to a doctor's appointment so walking from our house to our driveway was a major event for him he would get so overheated that he would get nauseous and almost pass out as a caregiver and a person who's taking care of someone i got to the point where i'm like not, I'm not saying that CRPS people are toddlers, but I needed to anticipate his needs and not make him ask me every time, mom, can you go out and turn the car on so that the air conditioner's on? Just don't make him beg for it. Like just take care of him in the way that he needs to be taken care of. So every time we go, I'd make sure the car was on and make sure it was on for 10, 15 minutes before we left so that it was fully cool. So if I can just get him out there, get him in the car, he would be comfortable. Anywhere we had to drive, it was very taxing for him. Um, I remember this very clearly. If I drifted off to the side of the highway where you hit those little rumble strips, it would set him off. Like that vibration would set him off. Couldn't remember things. Like he he had no recollection of things that were talked about in doctor's appointments. His sense of temperature, his blood pressure, he would get tunnel vision. He would have tinnitus. He had severe clenching in his jaw. Oh my gosh. Like any one of these things alone would drive you crazy and to have all of it at once. Like it makes me want to throw up. It's the entire sympathetic nervous system. He couldn't properly go to the bathroom. He couldn't tolerate the feel of fabrics on his body. Um, He had one pair of pants. It, it, It couldn't be too tight. It couldn't be too loose. It couldn't be too scratchy and it couldn't be too soft. He had one pair of pants that worked. He could not wear socks. He could not wear shoes comfortably. He ended up with a pair of slippers that would work because they went up high enough that they weren't over the spot that would make him mad or drive him crazy. Then what started happening was it started like actually harming him. He was stepping into the shower one day and he screamed. His brother went running all of a sudden called dad, get dad up there. They had to get him out. Come to find out he tore his right hip labrum. A couple months later, tore the left one. Oh my gosh. This just went on and on and on. We knew that his ankle was 
fine because when he went to the emergency room, they did a scan of the ankle and it came back with a clean bill of health. From that time to about a year later, he had been basically bedridden. And one day we went in and he mentioned to the doctor, my ankle is really bothering me. And they reached over and they kind of grabbed it. And when they grabbed it, he passed out and almost threw up. On the way home, he was like beside himself. They, they, they ended up ordering an MRI. I thought the MRI would come back fine, right? Like, because why wouldn't it come back fine? We had a scan a year ago. It was fine. You haven't done anything since then. What's going to harm that ankle in the meantime? And the answer to what is going to harm that ankle in the meantime was his own brain. His brain was not creating the proper amount of blood flow and nutrition to his soft tissue to keep everything healthy. When I went to pick up that MRI results, I always picked them up because I I don't want to get to doctors. Obviously, they don't have them. When I got it and I looked at it, it had severe tendonitis. I will never forget these words. It said this represents like a major difference. From the previous scan, severe tendonitis, interstitial tearing. His ankle was just completely torn apart and from nothing, from doing nothing. He didn't, he hardly walked. So we had to deal with that. It was just the one thing after another. And meanwhile, I didn't connect that this was all CRPS. Like I didn't know. I was like, is it COVID? Is it does he have some kind of, we were seeing neurologists, rheumatologists, endocrinologists, gastrinologists, urologists. We ended up at a geneticist because they thought connective tissue disorders. Like I said, we're up to 34 physicians by now. His body was destroyed. At this point, he's like 24. That was the dynamics of him and his CRPS. I did find a paper at one point and I cried when I found it. That's written by a doctor named Robert Schwartzman. He's deceased now, but this paper was written in like 2014 and it's called Systemic Complications of Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. And when I read that, it was like the holy grail of papers to me because it explained every single thing and it validated every single thing that had gone on with my son. Can you share what treatments your son has tried and how effective they were? Absolutely. I'm going to preface it by saying, obviously, the experience that I just described for you, it was very traumatic. It was very traumatic for him. Two things that tell you that. One, he routinely asked to have his leg amputated. Routinely. And two, on probably three to four occasions, he expressed to me that he had lost his will to live. And that the only reason he did not act on that feeling is because he worried what it would do to me. And he used the phrase, I don't want you to find me. He said that to me on my 30th wedding anniversary. And it was like a knife in the heart. Um, Mothers on the internet saved my son. And it's one of the reasons why I can so relate to Yada because you're so beside yourself. You're so devastated by what's happening and what you're watching with your child. And you feel so powerless to help them because you're at the mercy of taking them to someone and what they know. And doctors do not know everything. They only know what their little corner of the world looks like. They have you know, their offering of products and services. And if you don't fall within that offering, you're in the wrong spot. And you don't know even sometimes what to ask for. 
right? And, and truthfully, you do have to ask for things a lot. If even one of his doctors read an article on CRPS, I would be shocked and amazed. I don't even think they fully put together what was happening with Connor. I eventually did, but it wasn't a doctor that helped me get there. It was a random person on the internet sharing Dr. Schwartzman's article and me having the wherewithal to go, hmm, this looks like probably one I should read, right? <laughs> like, it feels like this might give me some answers. And it gave me every answer I needed. It was incredible. All of that to say trauma. And so my advocacy and, and the things that I do now, it's like a trauma response for me. It's, I can't bear the thought of another person going through what he did and not knowing what to do because we didn't know what to do for a very long time, very long time. And I remember when he told me on my anniversary, what I just described, I'm not going to say it again because I'll cry again. But when he said that to me, I looked him in the eye and I said, I promise you, I promise I will figure this out, but I need more time. Now I'd started following all kinds of Facebook groups um, which are a combination of really good information and horror show because you are seeing the worst of the worst when you're out there. In part, it was good because it, um, the horror show part even was good because it gave me the push and, and it's, it's like a serious shove is what it is. It gave me the push to spring into action. I got to do something. I can't let this wait. You have to act quickly. Don't, don't delay. I heard about spinal cord stimulators. We had doctors tell us about that. Obviously the blocks that I was talking about, we knew about those. There's ketamine, which is what Beata took Maya to. My son had ketamine as part of an anesthesia. The thing with CRPS patients is the, the more you mess with them, it can jump around and it can make it worse. So the doctor would use ketamine in his IVs to create like a dissociation between his brain and his body to prevent spread during any kind of a procedure. So the only time he's done ketamine is when he was having surgery to prevent exacerbation. Yeah. So there's ketamine. Um, there's something there's bisphosphonates, I think is how that's pronounced, which is like a bone drug. All of those things that I just described, every single one of them is what I would call symptomatic relief. It will address symptoms that you're having. We even did things like Botox, trigger point injections using uh, lidocaine, all of that. Every single one of that is targeting symptoms, symptoms only. The only way to really, truly address CRPS at the root cause is to address the disconnect between the brain and the body. Retrain your brain. And you have to retrain your brain that the pain that you're feeling is not justified. So you can do it through that red, yellow, green system that I was talking about. You can, you can kind of brute force it. That takes a really long time. And you need to catch CRPS fairly early for that to really work. The other way that you can retrain your brain is through neuromodulation. That was one of the things that I kept seeing on the, these Facebook sites that I followed was something called scrambler therapy. I don't know if anybody else has mentioned that to you. There were three people in particular. I kept seeing their names attached to it. I'm actually friends with them now. Scrambler therapy was for our house. I don't say this lightly. I'm not a super religious person. I'm not a religious person at all. But if I were to describe Scrambler, I would describe it as 
like watching the hand of God reach in and heal my son's brain. That is not an overstatement. What it does is it was developed in Italy. There's a couple of companies that offer it, that distribute it throughout the United States. What Scrambler does, it's a, like I said, it's neuromodulation. So it's a machine and it uses surface electrodes. You place the surface electrode over a dermatome um, and there's two of them. Like somehow you, you create a loop for that signal to go through. It sends an electronic signal, very gentle, very mild, does not hurt. And that signal reaches the brain and is interpreted by the brain as being non-pain. And it zeroes out your pain. It can zero it out for many people. Like for my son, the minute they turned it on and got it to the right level, his pain was completely gone. Like within a minute. We do scrambler therapy over the course of two weeks. Two weeks is how long it takes your brain to form a new habit. So if you're going to exercise, if you want to start doing things or thinking about that, you got to do things over the course of a period of time so that you're, you develop these new neural connections that create new habits. So he would go to the clinic. We went to a clinic in Florida, wonderful doctor named Dr. D'Amato, and he did Calmari Scrambler. He went in on the first day and they hooked him up. And he he was a strong responder to this therapy, like really strong. I don't want anybody listening to this to think this is a normal response because many, many people take longer than he did to feel that level of relief. And that's okay and normal. Everybody has their own journey with this stuff. At the end of the first hour, you do it an hour a day for 10 days. The end of the first hour, we were walking out to the car and he goes, well, um, I did not expect that. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I, I was hoping for that. I don't know that I expected it. He went home on the first day and he was pain free for three hours, which was like a miracle. The next day he went back and again, did his hour treatment. He was in zero pain while he was there. We went back to the hotel and he was pain free for five hours. When we went to dinner that night, we were driving in the car and he had what I describe as a physical reaction to a thought where you can like actually see someone like kind of turn, like something is changing in their brain the way they think about things. He said, do you think I'm going to be able to go home after this therapy and have a life again? And I said, well, I do. That's why I would have moved heaven and earth to get you here. Um, And it was a, a journey to get him there. Even it took us a very long time to get him off of his medications um, because you, you can't have anything that creates interference in the brain. So all of these drugs that all of these doctors had him on, and it was a lot. We had to take him off of all of those, which is like super duper scary to someone who's been in that much pain for that long. It was a fight for me to get him off those medications. He didn't want to let it go. Um, I don't blame him. I would feel the same way, but I knew that those medicines were a band-aid and that this could be a solution. So then we get to dinner after that car ride there and we're sitting at dinner. And again, this just like physical reaction to a thought, like his body like jolted. And he said, oh my God, mom, this is just so weird. He said, my brain feels 
different. <laughs> like it's not being squeezed and my hands feel normal again. Then it was just boom, boom, boom. He went for the next eight days. You know, you do five days one week, five days the next week. And by the time that he left, his CRPS was in remission. For him and his journey, that was not the end. He's still in his journey because CRPS destroyed his body, destroyed it. He came home immediately and had a hip surgery. Then he had to have another hip surgery. The second hip surgery, despite following the surgical protocol with ketamine that you just referenced, took him out of remission. He went and did scrambler again. Scrambler right back into remission. Took him five days the second time. And he's still continuing to rebuild and regrow. His second surgery, the hip surgery, was a year ago, like this week. But since then, he's had all of the other stuff that he's had to recover his body from. He's actually doing something right now um, because, you know, we're, we're fixing all these little pieces and parts of his body, like hip here, hip there. He's got this nerve compression going on in this arm. He's got another nerve. Big thing for him was his pelvis, which was like ground zero for a bunch of stuff. But for some reason, CRPS can really disrupt the pelvic region, I think, because it's like a big connecting point. That's why his hips tore. He had extreme dystonia in his pelvis. It also caused compression of the nerves, the sciatic nerves running through his pelvis, which would give him shooting sciatic pain down both of his legs. Um, we found a doctor here that does something called nerve hydro dissections. Connor would always say, my ass is on fire, mom, <laughs> like, because it's squeezing those nerves yeah. that run right through there. And so he's done a lot of nerve hydro dissections through his pelvis. Um, he's done them in his arm. He's done them in his leg. He still has nerve compressions in the original spot under his knee, which I think is from the boot. We're actually going to do an MRN, which is MR neurography. It's kind of like an MRI, but it looks for nerve compressions. He still has that arm hurting from the day he picked up the puppy. We <laughs> don't know why. And it makes his whole arm numb. Like he can't type effectively things like that. So we're still doing that because we've got all these little spots all over his body. I kept saying to doctors, we need something systemic. We need something that's going to like fix him all the way through. I don't know what that is. What I found again, without any direction from doctor, but more through internet searches um, was something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yes. And um, he's in the middle of that now. He's done 22 sessions. He will probably do 35. And he's just at the point where we're expecting to start to see changes in his body. He's not feeling anything super duper yet um, and didn't expect to. I should say that what hyperbaric oxygen does is it uses pressurized oxygen just to like heal your tissue throughout your body. It creates new blood cells and it creates new neural connections. It creates stem cells. It affects the mitochondria of cells, which is very healing. All of that takes time to build up, right? You got to keep doing the treatments and then eventually your body is there. His body is just to the point it's there. Now we need to keep shooting that oxygen in there to like take advantage of those new blood vessels that to heal the tissue by getting oxygen out to them, right? Like you got to, first you got to build the vessel and then you got to put the stuff into it that's going to heal you. And so we're just to the point where we're doing that. But it's been a very long, exhausting journey. His CRPS is in remission. Scrambler therapy was... Like I said, the hand of God reaching in, fixing his brain, but the damage was done. 
by the time we got him to see, to um, Scrambler. And so then in Scrambler can't fix all that, right? It's It just fixes the connection between the brain and the body. That's That's what Scrambler does. But for healing his body, you know, we're trying this here and this here and this here. I'm like, we got to do something over, overall. He needs something overall. He laughs more after the 20 sessions he's been to. He's more social. He comes out and sits with his brothers. I'm seeing it. He walks faster. He walks at a more smooth gait. I believe we haven't even gotten to the point where the real healing has begun. And already we're seeing those things. So scrambler therapy, you're the only person who has mentioned it. Scrambler therapy absolutely should be the first line treatment for CRPS. Absolutely, without a doubt. Are there any serious side effects that you're worried about? No, non-invasive and painless therapy. Um, the, the side effect is this, or the, I wouldn't even call it a side effect. The ramification is it doesn't work for everybody. It's a computer algorithm. It may or may not be a match with your brain. If your brain is not one of the 16 pre-programmed algorithms, it's not going to work for you. So the worst thing that happens is it doesn't work. And you spent your money, which is devastating for the CRPS patient because they get their hopes up and then their hopes are crushed. That is not to be downplayed. I can tell you if we would have gotten there and it wouldn't have worked, I probably would have gone into a depression that would have lasted a very long time. I've known people that that's happened to. It is it is devastating. It can it can put them in a headspace where they lose their will to go on. but. What I did and what I counsel people is go into it with your eyes open. You know, it might not work. Have a backup plan. What are you going to do if this doesn't work? I had a backup plan. I had an entire list. Ketamine was on there, as was a spinal cord stimulator, as was bisphosphonate. Like I had a whole list. I had them in order. I was ready to go. But the other thing is all of these procedures, uh, hyperbaric oxygen, scrambler, they're not covered by insurance. Like we live in Dallas, so we have a we have a lot of stuff here. Folks who live in rural locations, they don't have this stuff at their back door. They got to travel somewhere. That's another expense. They don't have the money to do it. It is my life goal to get Scrambler covered by insurance. I will do whatever I can. The the big thing that they push, spinal cord stimulator, probably cost eighty to one hundred thousand dollars for an insurance company. If you think about. It, if Connor would have gotten that, he would have had a spinal cord stimulator at the age of 25, and then he would have had to maintain it for the rest of his life. You're not, you're not going to put one in at 25; and it's going to last forever. So you're going to do this surgery two, three, four, five times, whatever it is. Scrambler was less than four thousand dollars for him. We just paid it. Um, we also had to travel, so that was another three, four thousand dollars. So less than ten thousand dollars for him. To many people, that is an extraordinarily large amount of money. I recognize that and I do not uh, minimize that. For us, we are very fortunate. My husband and I are in a position to pay for that for him. He could not have paid for it on his own. So that's the downside, right? But it's a huge savings for an insurance company to pay for that. Yes. And I instead of the spinal stimulus, let's think about fiscal responsibility for these insurance companies. That's like such a small percentage. When I was talking to my friend Lynn in this episode that I was talking to you about where we discussed uh, the Maya overall story mm-hmm. and she talked about her situation with Sally Smith. Her son didn't end up having CRPS, but something similar. They were trying to figure out what it was, but it wasn't CRPS. It was another pain syndrome. She went to all these doctors and they were like, it's either in his head or it's um 
like an isolated incident and he'll get better. She started what we call doctor hopping and hospital hopping. You don't take your kid home from someone telling you they'll be fine. And this is all in their head and just, okay, we're going to give up. Like, we're just going to go home and we're going to live like this for the rest of our life because the doctor said that we're fine. And you know, you're not fine. Like, that's not what a parent does. A parent advocates for you, right? Throughout the trial, there's so many moments where Johns Hopkins and their attorneys are mocking Beata for her online little blogs and her community of other moms that she talks to. Oh, you just heard me say I did the exact same thing. Right. If we go to a doctor and they don't have a solution to our kid, do we just give up? No. Like, we find other doctors. And it, how do you? You find other doctors, you talk to other people on the internet, you know, there might be some bad information on the internet and you have to filter through it. But there's also bad doctors out there that you have to filter through. The way that they were mocking that, it just, it really reminded me when you were talking about the people that you found online to provide you some information. Like, how else are you supposed to do this? Like, we don't just give up on our kids. No, you're absolutely right. And we didn't really, we were lucky. So the first pain doctor we went to, he gave Connor the diagnosis and then that diagnosis stuck. We did get eventually a second opinion um, just because I was like what else I was struggling to figure out what to do with him like I didn't know what to do to fix him um that was before I learned about scrambler and it was maybe like eight months after the initial diagnosis we never had anyone walk back a diagnosis but the one thing and I I do love this doctor so let me just say that up front I always felt like he had Connor's best interest at heart I I felt like it was upsetting to him that he couldn't help Connor more than he was like I, I truly felt that but he also, I think he was skeptical because he would hear, oh, you're going to a urologist and you're going to this. And at one point he said something along the lines of, you guys are running to all these doctors. And I just looked at him and I said, I don't know what to tell you. We're going to a urologist. He can't pee, right? What would you have me do? And he had no answer to that. And then he never questioned me after that. I have a a pretty good ability to read an article and go, this will work. And here's why, because here's the dynamics or the mechanisms of CRPS. And here's what this modality does. And here's how these two things meet. Not saying I'm perfect, but I can do that pretty well. And I can also explain it pretty well. There's a lot of people who can't do that, but I can explain it to doctors. Connor, with his CRPS, it affects their brain. Their cognitive abilities are affected and they don't remember stuff. I wonder what would have happened and how he would have been treated if I was not in the room every single time. And when I say every single time, hundreds of medical visits, hundreds. I have been in there hundreds of times and I'm pretty outspoken. I'm not unwilling to push back. And like I said, when the doctor said, why are you going to do this scrambler thing? I don't think I would do that if I were you. And my response to him was, this is what we're doing. That was the end of that conversation. I listen to every word they say. I do listen to every word that doctors say. But I also think they come at it from the four walls of what their practice is. I'm a pain management doctor. I can offer you spinal cord stimulators, nerve block, blah, blah, blah. They don't think about it outside of those things. Um, Connor had a few flares that I've never seen anything like it. It looked like he was possessed. It looked like his body 
was eating him from the inside out. I don't even know how to describe it. It was traumatic for me to watch. And they always happen in the middle of the night. I've got a day job just like everybody else, but I'd be up with him at two or three o'clock in the morning for hours at a time while his body was, it was horrifying what his body was doing to itself. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. You can't imagine trying to manage the number of dynamics that you have to manage with a CRPS situation. It's a lot as a caregiver. And and I say that I had an adult son. I, I struggled to think how would I have felt if my son would have been the age of Maya at that time. I don't wish it for her, but I understand how she came to the conclusion that she came to for Beata. Yeah. I understand how it happened. I don't blame her. I don't think she's a selfish person. Um, I think she was doing what she needed to do, what she thought was the best thing for her family. I think I usually think when somebody does that, that it's so selfish because of the way that it affects everybody else. But in this situation, it really feels very selfless. Again, like I was telling you before, I went through a very small experience of that, like not having the ability to make decisions for your child, I absolutely can understand how you could get to that point. But I also kind of feel like it it had to have been like, if you feel like this is the only way to get your child out of this situation where she's literally being mistreated. They took her away because they thought a suspected child abuse and then they abused her themselves. <laughs> it's just, there's just no excuse for it. And that, that part about where they put the toilet away and wouldn't help her, that was abusive to me. How can you walk when your feet are frozen? You can look at someone and say, with their feet like they can't walk. And now you're not going to help them get to the restroom. Is it like the most basic human need? Like how they treated her like that is just so devastating to me. And how that must have made her feel. And I think how it made Beata feel is like the thing that really overwhelms me because it's kind of interesting to talk to you versus to talk to some of the other people I've spoken with who have CRPS is how hard it is for the person taking care. Like these, the people that I've spoken with who have CRPS, like it's almost like, even though it's devastating what they go through, it's almost like a hero story. Like, you know, I've been through all this and this is where I am. And it's like almost very positive, even though we're talking about something that's like horrendous. Speaking with you, I mean, I don't have a child with a disease like this, but I can feel how that must feel. And I can feel how that must feel for Beata in some scale, especially when it's your kid. It's like, like it's our job, you know, to take care yeah. of them and protect them. I feel like I was in a race against the clock from two perspectives. The the one clock was his will to live. I had to beat his will. to. I had to find a solution before he lost his will to live and acted on it. The second clock for him he was 25 and um, we have a very firm cutoff in this country of 26 where you're on your parents' insurance. So there was an incredible anxiety and, and pressure for me, like, oh my God, my kid is going to lose his health insurance and I don't want to know what it's going to be like if we start over and he has to have new doctors and like all of that. Now, what I learned, I could petition my employer to have him declared medically dependent on me and remain independent. And I got a two-year extension for him to remain on my health care. Okay, you, you spoke about this list, your backup list, if the scrambler didn't work. You said ketamine was on it. Was a ketamine coma on it? I would not have advocated, because Connor was an adult, so he is his yeah. body, his decision. I would not have advocated for him to do that. 
And I don't know that he would have come up with it on his own because I was the one doing all of the reading. That is not something I would have considered advocating for him to do from his own perspective for where he just had it as part of like IVs. He hated it. He did not want to go down the ketamine path. It was on the list of like, well, here's something we could try later. But it was not very high up on the list because of driving home from the, you know, procedure after he'd had it. He'd be like, oh, I hate the way I feel. And he didn't like it. So that would not have been something that would have been up there. And I can completely understand why that raised some red flags. What pisses me off, though, is that Beata worked with physicians and physicians recommended this to her. And she worked with board certified physicians to develop a treatment plan for her daughter. People do medical tourism all the time to go to Mexico. So Scrambler, like I said, was invented in Italy. People go to Scrambler in Italy. People go to Italy. Also, Italy seems to be a hotbed for CRPS treatments. They have something called Noridronate in Italy. Um, it is a bisphosphonate um, infusion that you do. It has to do with like the bones, like your bones. I don't know how it works exactly. That one, I don't understand the way I understand Scrambler, but it does help a lot of people. So let me say that. That one was like next on my list. There's also a doctor out in Nevada named um, Dr. Holstrup or something. He was on my list of like, he he does like surgical interventions. He's he's of the belief that CRPS always results from a nerve injury out of pocket. He does not take insurance. So he was on my list. Spinal cord stimulator, very bottom. Ketamine, one layer above that. Um, bisphosphonates were toward the top. And then there's some other things that I've learned about since then that I probably would have had on my list, some different neuromodulation kind of things. Based on your understanding of the Maya Kowalski case, do you think it is more likely that she had CRPS? Is there a part of you that doubts it and thinks that it could have been a psychiatric syndrome such as conversion disorder? I am 100% convinced she has CRPS. I've seen it and I know what it looks like and that's what it looks like. What do you think everyone seems to have gotten wrong about the Kowalski case? Early on, when Connor was experiencing all these stuff, I, I just told you a little while ago, it's not that I didn't believe him. It's that what was going on was unbelievable. Like, I'd never heard of it before. I didn't, how could, like, your entire body fall apart at one time? And I, and I really did not have a good working knowledge of the nervous system, right? I don't think most people do. I do now. I think I could have been a really good neurologist or neuroscientist. If I could start over, that's what I'd be. I don't think people understand that. And I don't think they understand the extent to which if your nervous system is not functioning properly, nothing works. Nothing it is the bolt of lightning to your electrical system that puts out every appliance in your house. Truly, that is what it's like. And I don't think if people don't understand that, they're like, oh, her leg hurt. No, it wasn't that her leg hurt. It was that her brain was not functioning properly, causing her leg to hurt, but then disrupting every other part of her body at the exact same time. And I just don't think people get that. I didn't. I can say it. I did not. If I had watched this trial, not knowing what I know, I probably wouldn't have been as big of a believer as I was. I just think that that's human nature. I absolutely 100% would never have wished this on this family. It was a 
devastating situation in every way possible. I would not want anyone to go through that ever. But given that it's happened, the sliver of a silver lining for the CRPS community is that awareness has been made. And I will say, I went to a Friendsgiving dinner last week, like a kind of community thing. And I was sitting next to a young mother. Somebody was asking me a question. And I I said, my son has a a rare neurological condition called complex regional pain syndrome. Um, You may have heard about it because there is a documentary on Netflix now called Take Care of Maya. And the young mother on the other side of me said, I have like, she was more indignant about this trial than I was. Like, she was furious. So here's someone who probably six months ago would not have had a clue who was aware of this condition. And I can't even tell you the number of people who've reached out to me. Oh, you got to watch this documentary. You got so many people, so many people. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.